Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's visit to the border at El Paso today, on his way to Mexico City for the North American Leaders' Summit. Joining us is Michelle Garcia, a journalist, essayist, and current Soros Equality Fellow at the Open Society Foundations, a former Texas correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review, and a former columnist for the Texas Observer. She's the director of the PBS documentary Against Mexico, The Making of Heroes and Enemies, and she's currently working on a book about borders and their powerful influence on U.S. identity, politics, and the culture of violence. The 2021 winner of the American Mosaic Journalism Prize and the Covering Climate Now Award, we will discuss her recent article at CNN, The U.S. Must Free Itself of Political Delusions About the Border. Then, with Iran's brutal theocratic regime executing more protesters, we'll examine why the U.S. is not doing more to help the popular revolution underway in Iran, particularly since President Obama recently revealed he regretted not giving more support to the 2009 Green Revolution, which the regime violently repressed. Joining us is Genevieve Abdo, a fellow at the Wilson Center who was formerly the liaison officer for the United Nations Alliance on Civilizations, as well as the first American journalist to be based in Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. She's the author of four books on the Middle East, including The New Sectarianism, The Arab Uprisings and the Rebirth of the Shia-Sunni Divide, and we will discuss her article at The Hill. By not supporting protesters, we're repeating the same mistakes in Iran. Then finally, with the new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy thanking Donald Trump for his job after 15 humiliating rounds of voting, saying that for the sake of the country, the great divider Trump said, quote, we have to come together. Joining us for an historical perspective on deadlocks in Congress and an assessment of the price Kevin McCarthy will pay for his speakership is Thomas Belsersky, a professor of U.S. history at Occidental College and a long-term fellow at the Huntington Library. He's the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King, and we will discuss his article at CNN, Kevin McCarthy is Getting Schooled in History. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Michelle Garcia, who's a journalist, SAS, and the currently a Soros Equality Fellow at the Open Society Foundation, a former Texas correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review and a former columnist for the Texas Observer. She's the director of the PBS documentary Against Mexico, The Making of Heroes and Enemies, and is currently working on a book about borders and their powerful influence on U.S. identity, politics, and the culture of violence. The 2021 winner of the American Mosaic Journalism Award and the Covering Climate Now Award. She has a recent article at CNN, The U.S. Must Free Itself of Political Delusions About the Border. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Michelle Garcia. It's good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And as we speak, President Biden is in El Paso, where there has been a influx of people fleeing political oppression and gang violence in Haiti as and in Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua. He's scheduled to spend about three hours on the ground. He'll be visiting the Bridge of the Americas Port of Entry alongside Customs and Border Protection officers, and then he'll also be visiting the El Paso County Migrant Services Centre, meeting with local officials and faith leaders and non-government organisations, and he's accompanied by the DHS Secretary Mayorkas, Texas Representatives Veronica Escobar, Henry Queller, and Vincente Gonzalez, and then the El Paso Mayor Oscar Lesser, and the El Paso County Judge Ricardo Samiengo. So this, of course, is a little blue island in a red state, but in many ways, Biden is getting slammed for continuing a Trump-era policy of the Title 42, which allows federal authorities to expel migrants quickly, citing the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, that has been upheld by the Supreme Court. So, I mean, obviously, Biden is trying to thread a needle here. How successful do you think he'll be? Well, it depends on how you define success. And I think one of the main issues to understand what what the situation requires is an understanding of what he's doing and the sort of disconnect he is using, as have previous administrations, immigration law, and in this case, asylum law, the, and mauling, if you will, the asylum law to deal with a border issue, a, a, pol- a political issue at the border. And, and I think it's really important to understand that distinction. He issues, or the administration issues these changes to asylum rules to how the border, uh, how people can request asylum at the border, which is essentially they cannot um, under the new rules. And it is to address a question of two major issues that have been there for Obama and again for Biden, which is uh, a question of optics at the border. The issue, what they're trying to do is get people off the southern border. They're trying to eliminate the images that uh, rile up the right wing and turbocharge their zealotry and fervor and terrify most everyone else. So that's the one thing they want to do. And also, by doing that, it, it sort of papers over the fact that this administration has not prepared for the influx of people, right? So because there's not infrastructure to process people, to to manage the border, the Southern border, the solution of this administration as have previous um, administrations is get rid of the people. And so what's really telling is these new rules come out in which people have to use an app, have a phone, have a plane ticket, have a sponsor in order to um, seek asylum, none of which is really required under asylum law, under international treaty. Um, and then the response, the outrage is, look at what he's doing to immigrants. And obviously this has immigration ramifications, asylum ramifications, without a doubt. But I direct people's attention to uh, an important memo that Roll Call just obtained 
and it was a fact sheet, a sheet, and it says facts about Biden administration's border enforcement measures. And that's the disconnect, Ian. It's that what people respond to when there is an outrage, when there is a backlash, is how can you do this to the immigrants, to the asylum seekers, when there is no response to the problem that Biden is trying to address, which is a border problem. Do you see the difference? And so as long as there's people on the border, and there will always be people crossing the border since the border was created, it will give the right ammunition to blast Democrats about the border. And that has happened since for a very long time. But I mean, going back to the 90s with Clinton. Mm -hmm. And so this is the issue about how do we define success? Well, indeed, the new speaker, finally, of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, announced that the first hearing that the new House will be taking will be on the border itself. So this is really a problem about America, isn't it? As you point out in your article at CNN, Michelle Garcia, the U.S. must free itself of political delusions about the border, that we, our delusions about the border range between this idea that there's a border crisis that requires more agents, drones, and sensors, and on the other hand, this completely nonsensical notion that there's such a thing as an open borders policy. So whose responsibility is it to educate the American people? What a great question, Ian. I mean, I'm sitting here in my living room and I can see the border wall. I am on the border. I am a short walk from the river. And um, the surveillance here is... This region is so saturated with surveillance that in the most recent Border Patrol's um, self uh, audit of their performance, their performance review, they are retiring the metric of surveillance because they have reached it consistently for 100%, five years. And so there is this disconnect between, oh, the only way to address the border is with more surveillance, more drones, more helicopters, more agents. And this is a never ending, it's like the war on terror, right? I mean, it just goes on. And to your question, who's responsible for educating the American people? You know, this is, it's a gutting question because Democrats consistently concede the narrative about the border to Republicans. They don't have a counter narrative. Um, That has been consistently shown in reports and you see this in election after election. I think we in the media, we in the press need to start reframing these conversations to explain to people, to explain to the public, not only these distinctions, right? To understand the politics of this, but also, and I think this cannot be overemphasized, why border security politics affects almost every other aspect of American life. It is influencing elections. It led to the longest shutdown in American, government shutdown in American history in 2019. It is a platform by which some, by which uh, elections are decided by some, extremists are elected into office. It is a um, beacon, if you will, for violent zealotry. Um, You consider all of these aspects and more, it stems from 
a sort of vision that is powered by a violent delusion on the border. And I believe it is the responsibility of all of us to take back this narrative and start having different discussions about what political leaders are saying and how they are trying to obfuscate their responsibility at the border with a, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Just get people off the border. Well, after Biden's trip today to El Paso on the border, he's going to the summit of North American leaders in Mexico City, meeting with AMLO, Lopez Obrador, and Trudeau of Canada. And clearly, AMLO was upset and boycotted the 2022 Summit of the Americas here in Los Angeles because uh, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua's leaders were not allowed in. So what do you think is going to be the result of this meeting? Is there a way to solve the problem at its root, is what Biden initially tasked Vice President Harris with to go to to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador to make life in those countries more livable so people would be flock, flocking in through Mexico into the southern border. Now you have a different crisis from Nicaragua because of the repression of that government along with the ongoing exodus of people out of Cuba, which has accelerated since the demonstrations a, a year ago. So those are incredibly thorny issues, aren't they? And at the end of the day, is it realistic to think that the US can make life more livable for people in these countries? Well, let's consider, you know, I think your question, let's rephrase, can we rephrase the question to, can we examine US policies in these regions and look at how and which policies actually contribute to the destabilization of these regions? Okay, so, so right, because we, we talk about, oh, what is the U.S. roles in, quote unquote, helping, let's say, Central America, right? And when Vice President Harris was appointed, you know, tasked with this to deal with, quote unquote, root causes, what does she do? She assembles a team of MasterCard, Chobani, Yogurt, I mean, it's corporate, you know, corporate leaders to deal, to basically formulate neoliberal solutions to, to problems that were in part created by neoliberal policies that were adopted after the Central American countries came out of their long civil wars. So we have to look at what are the, poli you know, what are the policies the U.S. does have that may be contributing to the destabilization? And then, as you said, you know, it is thorny, right? Because look at, we got Cuba and Nicaragua. They're not the same as Honduras and El Salvador. Obviously, the situations are different. But I go back to the same thing here, which is we need to consider that it, in, we started with single Mexican men, then Mexican families in the 90s. Then we moved into the Obama administration and it was Central American kids, then it was Central American families. And now it's Nicaraguans, Cubans, Venezuelans coming from obvious political repression and collapse. And it doesn't matter what the person's circumstances are, as long as they're trying to arrive on the border, the US political system 
demonizes and criminalizes them and makes no distinction. And with Central Americans, was the rhetoric from Democrats and uh, Republicans was that they were economic migrants, completely overlooking the political and economic situations and, and larger issues of violence and so forth in those regions. So one of the ways is we, our political situation in our country, in the U.S., basically converts anybody who shows up at the border into a threat, regardless of what their actual situation is. And unless the U.S. is willing to look at its own policies in these regions, considering the U.S. as a sort of benefactor perpetuates a mythical um, sort of American exceptionalism mythology that is not very useful in actually solving real problems. Right, and an obvious disconnect is that while we're giving aid and money to the Central American countries to deal with the so-called root causes, we're continuing the squeeze on Cuba from the, what, 70 years long blockade. So there's no consistency there. And also, of course, when you talk about repression, there's well, I mean, the, yes. the violence in... I mean, Haitians are fleeing from gang violence. It's just completely insane what's happening. So there's all kinds of different reasons why people are coming here. Exactly. And the thing is, is that what we need in this country, in the United States, is an infrastructure to examine and review in a just manner. Again, we go back to that was not created. And so what we do, what we have is a situation in which we, the press, collect individual incomplete stories of people's lives, present them to the American public and say, here, sit there and judge whether these people have the right to enter this country. Are they deserving of your sympathy? But instead of sympathy, what we need to be talking about is infrastructure and accountability. And to your point about aid to Central America, yes, the U.S. sends aid to Central America while it demands that Central American countries open up its natural resources to mining, to deforestation, to the forced dislocation of people from their homes. And so when you have this kind of pressure to push people from their homes so that you can, for logging or mining, or you pollute their waters, where do you expect that they're going to go? They're going to go where they already have family, and that's the United States. And that's what I mean by examining if you want to talk about root causes and, and instead of what the U.S. could be doing to make things better, why don't we examine what the U.S. is doing and has done to, to contribute to problems and, and really re-examine that, re-examine our role in the hemisphere. And so what the question right now, Ian, is, what are American, what is the American public going to ask of its leaders? Is it going to ask, we just don't want to see images from the border? We just, just make it go away? Or are they going, are we going to, we, they, going to say, what are you doing to process people? What are you doing to, to create and uphold our treaties and our laws? Are we going to hold our political leaders accountable because what they do at the border is not divorced from what happens in the interior. Well, Michelle Garcia, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Ian. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Michelle Garcia, who's a journalist, essayist, and the current Soros Equality Fellow at the Open Society Foundations, a former Texas correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review and a former columnist for the Texas Observer. She's the director of the PBS documentary Against Mexico, The Making of Heroes and Enemies, and is currently working on a book about borders and their powerful influence on U.S. identity, politics, and the culture of violence, the 2021 winner of the American Mosaic Journalism Prize and the Covering Climate Now Award. She he has a recent article at CNN, The U.S. Must Free Itself of Political Delusions About the Border. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining why the United States is not doing more to help the popular revolution underway in Iran. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world below There is no sickness No toil nor danger In that bright land To which I go Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Geneve Abdo, who is a fellow at the Wilson Center, who was formerly the liaison officer for the United Nations Alliance of Civilizations, as well as the first American journalist to be based in Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. She's the author of four books on the Middle East, including The New Sectarianism, The Arab Uprisings, and The Rebirth of the Shia-Sunni Divide. And she has an article at The Hill, by not supporting protesters, we're repeating the same mistakes in Iran. Welcome to Background Briefing, Geneve Abdul. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Geneve. And in your article, you mentioned that former President Barack Obama acknowledged in an October podcast interview that he made a mistake in not supporting in significant ways the 2009-2010 protest movement in Iran, which was at the time the most significant challenge to the Iranian regime since its inception. Of course, now what's happening now is even more intense and more widespread. And yet we are repeating the same mistake, his vice president and now president. So what explains this? Why hasn't Biden got the message from his former boss? Well, I think that this time Obama had different reasons for not getting uh, too involved, and I'll explain those a bit later. But I think for the Biden administration, you know, they still are hoping, I think somewhat um, naively, that the nuclear talks known as the joint, as the JCPOA, that's the, the acronym for the nuclear negotiations that have been going on with Iran, that they will continue at some point in time. So they don't want to alienate the regime too much by making uh, very dramatic statements about supporting the demonstrators or giving legitimacy to their grievances, because they're still hoping that the regime will agree to negotiate again. And Biden, as I quoted in the article, has not officially said the nuclear talks have ended, even though in reality they have. So that's really the primary reason. And um, I mean, the regime is so repressive, as we know, as as has been going on since September, brutalizing people, executing young people just for going out on the streets. Yet the United States, which of course is always um, positioning itself as the great defender of human rights around the world, has not really done much 
all in any significant way to to try to change U.S. policy that would somehow punish and penalize Iran for what it has done since September. Well, you know, over the years, I've talked to our top, the government's top Soviet and Russian experts, and for the longest time, you know, going back to 1999, it's been obvious that Vladimir Putin is a murderous thug. After all, he he killed hundreds of his own people by blowing up apartment buildings in order to start a new war uh, against the Chechens. And for the longest time, the foreign policy establishment refused to look at who this man really is, who the leadership really are as people, as I hesitate to use the description human beings. And it seems they have the same blindness about the Ayatollah and this theocracy, which is nothing more than a bunch of murders and kleptocrats in in religious garb. I mean, why don't they see the obvious? Why do they somehow couch it all in geopolitical and diplomatic terms that they're dealing with heads of state and I guess they have to treat them with a certain decorum. For the life of me, I don't understand why you can't look at who you're really dealing with and recognize that the the people that you're dealing with are murderers. Well, I think that, I mean, I'll just speak specifically about the Biden administration. It seems that the reluctance which is being expressed toward Iran and also certainly Saudi Arabia I mean, if we look at, you know, Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia, his meetings with uh, the, well, now the prime minister, Mohammed bin Salman, there was huge criticism about this, of course, because, again, we have a regime that has, that not only represses its own citizens, but it kills dissidents, including, you know, the very, very dramatic and gruesome killing of uh, a Washington Post contributor, Jamal Khashoggi um, a few years ago. So the question, the same question arose, why is Biden going to Saudi Arabia? And the answer, you know, in Washington, where I've worked now for 14 years is, well, you know, we can't rest a policy on one man. We can't, we can't form policy based upon uh, demonstrations and uprisings. We have to think of the long term. We have to think of the uh, energy interests. We you know, the, we have to work with the devil we know, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. The same uh, attitude and logic is being applied to Iran, that the regime's not going anywhere. Um, the intelligence community here that sometimes gives private briefings, they believe the regime will survive this. They don't believe that this will lead to regime change. So given that assessment by the intelligence community and others within the U.S. government, that's how the policy is formed. So if we believe the regime is here to stay until some dramatic uh, event happens internally, so within the government, given that that's our assessment, why would we alienate this government no matter how repressive it is? And that's, that's the policy, you know, and it's, it's, of course, it's been condemned by human rights organizations around the world and the European governments actually have taken a much harder line toward the regime over these protests than the Biden administration, particularly Germany. So, um, but, you know, of course, the Germans have a different relationship with Iran than the United States. So that's basically the bot, that's the fundamental policy, which is that 
if the assessment that the government is around or this particular autocrat is not going anywhere, in the case of Mohammed bin Salman, who's now the prime minister, then we have to work with the devil we know. And alienating them and not negotiating with them is not a wise policy. That's that's the thinking of the Biden administration. But that is a policy that's doomed to fail, because if you believe that the regime is going to stay in power and hold off this widespread revolution led by these brave young women, then that precludes you doing anything to help the revolution. And I'd have some respect for these people if they, for example, believe that it's not wise to get involved in this revolution because the regime always says that foreign powers, the great Satan and the Israelis are meddling in our affairs. Now, they'll say, they say that in any case, so I don't know why, even, why you'd be restrained. But do you get my point? No, absolutely. And in this case, probably for the first time in Iran, uh, former government officials, and specifically uh, now former President Mohammad Hatami, have come out publicly and said, this has nothing to do with foreign interference. This has nothing to do with foreign governments. This is an internal uprising, and you better pay attention to what the demonstrators are saying. So for the United States, and I agree with you, I mean, the years that I was in Iran during the early days of the first wave of demonstrations, which was in 1999, that, that was the view, actually, of the opposition. Washington, don't endorse us, don't say anything because it's the kiss of death. But we're at a different, totally different place now, so much so that, you know, as I said, the uh, Iranian officials are saying, no, we can't use this excuse anymore. Let's face the music. This is an internal uprising. So for the United States, they can't really fall back on that kind of, uh, uh, you know, rationale any longer. So let, let me just read something from your article, which I'm interested in getting you to discuss further, because, I mean, you you point out that Secretary of State Blinken and the, the U.S. envoy to Iran, Robert Malley, are, are sort of have blinders on because they're so invested in the JCPOA. But there's also this other level of apologists, or if that's the right word. Right. And that's the think yes, tank that level. is the right word. Yeah. <laughs> You say, recently I asked the president of one of Washington-based think tank why he would hire an Iran expert who advocates for the regime's interest in Washington when thousands of Iranians are being brutalized in the current uprising or executed simply for speaking out. He expressed concern about Iranian protesters but then defended his think tank hiring process as vigorous without really addressing the issue. So, again, why are the blinders you know, trickling down to the academic and think tank world as well as, uh, or presumably the trickling back up to the State Department and the National Security Council and possibly even the CIA? In the case of people in think tanks here, and it's been well documented in newspapers in, uh, for years now, in the case of some of these organizations, and it's not probably all that accurate to call them think tanks because they're the people there operate as lobbyists and activists for the Iranian regime. In that case, they get money for doing this sort of thing. I mean, some of them are Iranians themselves, so they, they on some level, probably believe that the regime should stay in power, so they're not 
for a regime change. And they also are paid by foundations to do this kind of work. They appear on television. Um, they have high profiles in the media. So that's what drives them to take this position. They serve, they, they work as lobbyists. They don't really work as, as scholars or uh, non-partial experts. I mean, that's one reason. The other reason is um, that, uh, you know, I mean, in the case of the example I gave, and I won't use any names, but um, in the case of the example I gave, it's sort of an ego trip for this person. So she is on TV all the time. She gets speaking engagements. Because her position is so um, so out there, it, it's so extreme. I mean, she defends. She has been defending the regime for years in the face of of all sorts of crises. And so, you know, to go back on that now means that she doesn't really have a platform any longer. So there, you know, some of this is just motivated by individual ego and other people in DC who advocate for regimes such as the Iranian regime, they're getting money from this and notoriety. So those are the two main kind of motivations, but we shouldn't call them experts. I mean, they're not experts. They're lobbyists in some cases, and in other cases, they're just uh, propagandists. Right, but the rationale for the JCPO and for these apologist for this regime is that we have to deal with this regime, otherwise they'll get a nuclear weapon. Well, you know, they've probably, yeah. probably got enough fissile material now for, for at least one bomb. But it's pretty clear that Netanyahu's been driving U.S. policies in many ways, and he's I think he needs Iran as a boogeyman because he's trying to get the Saudis on side with the Abrahams Accords. Is, is that what's going on? Well, I, I would say that the argument that, as you mentioned, and, and, and that's very important, that, oh, we have to negotiate this nuclear deal, no matter how bad it is for the West, no matter how bad it is for the Middle East, for Arabs in the region where Iran is intervening in several countries. But we have to negotiate this deal because otherwise Iran will create a bomb. That, that argument doesn't hold any longer. Um, in the beginning, when... The Biden, when the Obama administration tried to make this argument, the um, intelligence community admitted that they didn't believe Iran was working toward a bomb. That has changed now, but it's, it, it, Iran at, behaves um, internally and in the Middle East, irrespective of what Washington policy is, irrespective of whether there are nuclear negotiations or not. So that was a very false kind of argument to make from the get-go, and it's even less legitimate now. Um, and, you know, that's, that's however, I, I, it's not really all that. You, you don't see that argument being made so much in Washington these days, nor in editorials, because it's sort of laughable at this point. And, of course, Iran is now forming a military alliance with Russia, and right. that's hard to believe that Netanyahu is nevertheless not supporting Zelensky, which is strange. And of course, we know now that Netanyahu is, is following in the footsteps of his mentor, Viktor Orban, in Hungary to create a kind of authoritarian state in Israel itself, led by him, so that he can stay out of jail. 
So he's, his position is very hard to understand vis-a-vis Iran, except, that, as I mentioned earlier, that Iran serves as a kind of a, a boogeyman, but the Mossad apparently believes that they really do have enough fissile material for a bomb. But just in the last minute here, what should the U.S. be doing, do you think? I mean, they're not doing a damn thing, and these people are being killed in the streets, and your heart goes out to these brave young women. Well, I think that some things they could be doing are symbolic and others are more substantive. Um, One um, idea that some of the Iranians have proposed is that all Western countries withdraw their ambassadors from Tehran. So, of course, the United States does not have an ambassador in Tehran. We work through the Swiss government um, in Iran because there are no formal diplomatic relations with Iran, but all the other European countries do have ambassadors. So that's been one concrete um, uh, uh, idea that some of the Iranians have had. Another one, of course, is more sanctions, because the regime has suffered from from sanctions that were imposed during the Trump administration. So the second uh, thing that is more substantive, I would say, is, is more sanctions. Um, the third is to declare officially that the nuclear negotiations with JCPOA is dead. Um, so these are some of the things that, and 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 fourth, which uh, was just announced this past week, is to sanction the Revolutionary Guards, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, who of course are ultimately responsible for a lot of the violence that's been going on, um, not only by their them but by um, the the kind of morality police that works under the umbrella mm. of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. So that's, you know, sanctioning the guards. Um, they have children who go to school abroad. They have investments abroad. So people believe that this could be a very important step for the Biden administration to take to avoid, to, to show the opposition to what, what's going on in Iran now. Well, I thank you for joining us, Geneva Abdo. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Geneva Abdo, who is a fellow at the Wilson Center, who was formerly a liaison officer for the United Nations Alliance of Civilizations, as well as the first American journalist to be based in Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. She is the author of four books on the Middle East, including The New Sectarianism, The Arab Uprisings, and The Rebirth of the Shia-Sunni Divide. And she has an article at The Hill, By Not Supporting Protesters, We're Repeating the Same Mistakes in Iran. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an historical perspective and an assessment of the price Kevin McCarthy will pay for his speakership. زندگی آزادی Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Pilsersky, who is the Ray Allen Billington Visiting Professor of U.S. History at Occidental College and long-term fellow at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. He is the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. And he has an article at CNN, Kevin McCarthy is Getting Schooled in History. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Balsersky. 
Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Friday night, or actually Saturday morning, early, we finally got a speaker in the house, Kevin McCarthy, on the 15th round. What I found extraordinary about it, uh, Thomas, was that before he handed over the gavel to McCarthy, the now minority leader of the Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries, he made a really stirring speech, and I thought it overshadowed McCarthy somewhat. What did you think? Well, indeed, it, it, it was an interesting and in many ways unprecedented ceremony since, um, first of all, it was early in the morning and everyone was tired and at wit's end and it was not planned necessarily. And indeed, we know that Hakeem Jeffries did not have a written text. So we're talking about an extemporaneous speech, which was building upon perhaps the events of the four of those four days that he lived through and the 15 ballots that the Congress went through. And we know, too, that this was really the largest stage Jeffries has had to give a speech. I think personally it was a incredible, stirring and historic speech on so many levels. Of course, we're talking about the first being made with with a major party leader in either branch of the U.S. Congress being African-American. So we have um, that historic first. We have as well a new generation of leaders following um, Nancy Pelosi stepping down. And I think also we had a moment where we didn't have the former speaker necessarily amicably passing the gavel to the next speaker. So Jeffries was in this moment where he could almost upstage McCarthy. And he gave a 15-minute speech, which, as it turns out, was shorter than McCarthy's remarks at 23 minutes, but nevertheless um, had the tendency to just sort of drag on the night a little bit. I thought, in terms of the content, listening to it bleary-eyed, as many of us were, late at night, um, that it, it w- reminded me of the best kind of form, content, style of Barack Obama, which maybe is too easy a comparison, but still, it, that's what came to mind for me. Um, and I think if he can continue this kind of leadership, if he can kind of stress the themes, particularly of democracy and fighting down demagoguery, which I take away as the, the largest kind of arch of the theme, a theme of the speech, then I think this this Jeffries as minority leader will have a bright future and I think inevitably will show up as speaker one day. So let's talk about your article at CNN, Kevin McCarthy is getting schooled in history, Thomas Polsesky. But the broader context surely is that, well, let me ask you this. Are we repeating a cycle in history of the 1850s when the Whig Party collapsed and in the detritus there was this know-nothing party that was formed that has many echoes of today's Freedom Caucus? The tale that wags the dog of Kevin McCarthy's tenure already arguably the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus has more power than Kevin McCarthy does because of all the concessions that were made. I mean, it's an interesting argument. And anytime we get into historical comparison, I like as a historian to try to understand sort of the stakes. Um, What's at stake here in the organization of, say, the U.S. House, um, the election of a speaker, And I think immediately the first kind of point I want to make, which makes this different from the 1850s, I want to start with sort of thinking about compare and contrast a little bit, um, is that the position of speaker 
is far stronger, far more important, frankly, than it ever was in the 19th century. Um, what we understand as the Speaker of the House, this sort of all-powerful committee assigning, uh, ruling with an iron fist, <laughs> we might think of it as individual who, uh, as we've seen most recently with Nancy Pelosi's control over her caucus, almost is a larger than than life figure up there with um, the president of the United States is a relatively recent phenomenon, which we sort of see emerging at the end of the 19th century, solidifying in the early 20th, and ebbs and flows um, well through the 20th century under various changes. So that here we are really now about 125 years into what we could call the powerful speaker phase. These 19th century speakers, and thus the ballots that unfolded in some cases over incredibly months, uh, were fighting over kind of a less important figure in terms of the control of Congress, the operation of Congress. That being said, what's, what's interesting too about those 19th century speaker balloting that took more than one vote, that, that has gotten everyone's attention and it's, and it's drawing the comparisons today and driving drove my article, um, is that the parties in question um, were not necessarily, number one, the parties we're familiar with today, although sometimes the names sound familiar. The stakes were different. And there were many more third, fourth, fifth parties, we might say, at work, such that the 19th century and really the period, say, between the 1820s and the 1850s was closer to a multi-party system than we are today, such that directly comparing the dynamics of each of those party uh, speaker votes, including, as you point out, the ones in the 1850s that had Democrats, Whigs, proto-Republicans, we might say, nativists, uh, free soilers, independents, and a few other differently labeled party-identified individuals, politicians, doesn't quite match to the strictly Republican and Democratic identities we've become used to really now for centuries since the Civil War, I would say. And while there have been some insurgent kind of moments between then and now, um, only once before, and that was in the 20th century in 1923, did we see a wing of a party. Um, and that too was a Republican party that faced multiple ballots in its speaker election try to take control and try to change the tenor of politics itself. So this Freedom Caucus, uh, I've heard it called different things, of course, but that's, that tends to be the, the identifying term that, that members use. It ebbed and flowed. It ended up being capacious enough at times to have, say, 20 votes against McCarthy. But it really, I think, was more like seven. And at the end, as we were watching the final balloting, we were seeing how many would vote present as opposed to giving the vote for McCarthy. And that ended up being five, um, I think. And that leaves us with this idea, is that really a party within a party? Is it a dissident faction? Or, or is it five individuals who have sort of perhaps sensed that in today's media ecosystem and in a divided Congress where the margin was so close, that there was an opportunity to seize. And thus there really wasn't an ideological battle at stake. There really wasn't a difference in sort of how they viewed their opponents, which again tends to unify parties as who they stand against, in this case, Republicans versus Democrats. No, instead it was about, I think, these individuals attempting to seize power um, quite cleverly, you might say, and to raise their profile in a very significant way in the process. Well, at best, they were only 10%. I mean, McCarthy got over 200 votes, and there were only 20 of them. 
So on 15 times, I might add, McCarthy got 200 votes and they at best got 20. But the broader analogy that I brought up with the 1850s and the know-nothings and the 2020s, is there anything to that notion that the Whig Party, in collapsing, the detritus became that group that you mentioned, the various parties, including the know-nothings, is that a possibility with this current Republican Party? Do you see it crashing and burning? Well, if it does, we'll be talking about this now in the future tense. I think it would take place years in the future because what we saw, I think, is something of a prelude to what would be then sort of an unfolding disintegration of a major political party. Do I see that happening? No. Has there been a historical moment where we've seen that kind of collapse? Yes. And yes, the collapse of the Whig Party, a party that really formulated as an as sort of a party against another party. They sort of define themselves as against the Democrats, against particularly Andrew Jackson, had some electoral success in the 1840s and 50s. But even within that 15-year period where the Whigs were a viable entity, they continued to sort of see disaffection and splinter groups come out of both their northern and southern wings, such that when they did win national elections, it was often sort of around candidate-based campaigns. Um, Famously in 1840, it's the war hero William Henry Harrison and a log cabin hard cider campaign. And in 1848 with Zachary Taylor, hero of the Mexican War. Uh, And so in both cases, they run kind of the the sort of popular generals and are able to kind of slide some of the issues that were dividing the party um, out of the way. But in terms of how politics works on the floor of Congress, there is a lesson, I think, from those speaker battles in the 1840s and 50s. And I think it's worth maybe looking at the, say, 10-year period where we saw the three longest debates, contests for speaker. And it starts in 1849, actually, when you saw an anti-slavery free soil party get just enough seats in the House to hold the balance of power. Now, they identified as free soilers. They ran as free soilers. So it's a little bit different in that, say, the Freedom Caucus types didn't run necessarily under that label. But of course, today we know who they are and voters were, they knew that. They were electing people who they knew would not necessarily work within the mainstream Republican Party. In fact, that's part of their branding and identity to voters. So let's let's take for a moment that you know, maybe you don't have to run under the label of a third party to actually be a third party within politics. If that's the case, then we can, I think, move on with the analogy because these free soilers rejected both the Whigs and the Democrats and instead saw themselves as a sort of issue driven. They were fighting the expansion of slavery. And so there were about a dozen of them that had came to the House in 1849 and in a smaller house in, in a moment where uh, that those that number of votes actually was consequential. They could hold up and did hold up the balloting for speaker. So in that in that election, it went 63 ballots in 1849 until, in fact, a compromise candidate emerged. So this is these three elections that that we can look at also show that compromise candidates tended to be the solution to the problem, which is why, again, in this last instance, we didn't quite see that energy happening. We didn't see a compromise candidate emerge. Instead, it was sort of the dominant candidate solidifying a base, which I think, again, makes us look at more like the 1923 example. But then just to say at these other two, we saw it happen in 1855. This is the famous uh, speaker's election that ran uh, 133 ballots over two months. And it's the same dynamics at work. And now the, the Whig party is so defeated and so collapsed that 
there there really weren't there really wasn't a second party per se. It really was no longer a two party system. It was a three or more party system. And these know nothings or formerly the American Party who had emerged as kind of a one issue anti-immigrant nativist voice where both North and South came in with, you know, in some cases, principles that aligned with what would become the Republican Party. In some cases, we're moving actually towards the Democratic Party. And, and Nathaniel Banks, this compromise figure who emerges on the 30th ballot uh, and eventually will hang in there through the 133 ballots to become speaker, shows that basically it, we, in, in a more than in a multi-party system, the kind of faction that can secure control from the most number of people is going to emerge. And so it looked more like, say, a parliamentary vote in the UK than it did, than it did our normal speaker vote, which is why it also went as long as it did, why it took as long to kind of uh, suss out those, those compromises. And then the last one in 1859, sort of the same dynamic with William Pennington, but there you had a Republican Party that was fairly solid in its orientation at that point. And, and I think there it was more about you just had just enough of a split. It was so narrowly divided that, again, a, a kind of a compromise candidate was needed to emerge from the Republicans. And this Pennington, who was a first-term congressman from New Jersey, um, ends up getting the nod. So there were moments in the last, I guess I would say, five days of the balloting and the discussion around the McCarthy nomination that made me think there, there were hints of what's to come. Um, but I think if the rules of the House have changed, if this caucus is going to continue to be dissident and potentially look for a new speaker in the next two years, then I think we'll have more of a potential historical comparison to go on. But for now, I think what we saw was a kind of a repeat of 1923. And I think McCarthy potentially has a limited time in office as a result. So is there an historical anomaly here in the sense that following the collapse of the, the Whigs and the emergence yeah. of the know-nothings who definitely have echoes of the Freedom Caucus today in terms of their nativism, etc. But then eventually under Lincoln, the Republicans form a party and by the time you get to Teddy Roosevelt, it's, it's largely a progressive party. Then you go to, to 1965 when Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. Apparently he said to his aides, you know, this will be the end of the Democratic Party in the South. And the Dixiecrats then became Republicans. And now the modern Republican Party is largely a Dixiecrat party. So how unusual is that, the idea that parties morph into each other? Well, that's, a, that's another great point, because sometimes we look to what's happening on the floor of, say, the U.S. House to read the tea leaves, so to speak, about the future of political parties in this country. And as someone whose current project and research centers on the history of the Democratic Party, this is a question I've been considering quite a lot recently. Um, I think party identity and partisanship changes over time. And as a result, we get these echoes that are unexpected from different moments in American history. You've, you've brought up several really good ones. And as far as uh, how we might, as historians and political scientists, understand these changes, there's, I think, a useful phrase here that I might introduce and see if it matches our moment, and that is realignment. And this idea that certain elections and certain moments are leading to realignment within the two-party system or, the, or kind of the multi-party system, as the case may be in any moment. Um, and realignment elections tend to then only be sort of understandable in hindsight as we look back and try to see the dynamics that played out. 
Now, it was considered until recently that 2008 and the election of Barack Obama was a realignment election. And if you look at, the, say, the longer history since 2008, and particularly how the Republican Party has aligned itself, again, as an obstructionist party against democratic rule, whether it be in the White House or in Congress, then I think you begin to see how important Obama's election is still to our present moment. It still seems to be driving the same kind of dynamics that we saw even on Saturday night. But I think that's sort of where the second act of our current realignment comes in, and that's Donald Trump's election. Trump's election sort of aligned the forces that were really, in a way, quite tame in opposition to Barack Obama and brought the carnival to Washington. He made it so that sort of burning down the institutions, quite literally in some cases, of our government was a viable political platform on which to run and on which to govern. Uh, or perhaps not govern as it might be. And while you know you could we'll look back on the Trump presidency in those four years, one way, I think one of the legacies that continues to show from it is individuals in Congress who obstructed McCarthy's nomination for fifteen ballots were enabled and emboldened. And if nothing else, McCarthy had to cave in to a wing, an extremist wing of his own party that had through the last six years, or if they've only been in the House for two years, the full backing of Donald Trump. And what's ironic, of course, is that McCarthy had been a Trump acolyte, is a Trump sort of supporter. I mean, it's it's almost like we're talking about the degrees by which the crazy, I think, plays out. And whether that, therefore, is about a political realignment or, again, about the influence of this larger-than-life figure within a party, that's what I'm wrestling with myself to try to understand. Well, just in the last minute to Thomas Pelsersky, since you wrote the book Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King, can I ask you a National Enquirer question? Uh, inquiring minds want to know, was James Buchanan America's first gay president? Yes, they would like to know, and I think there's a book that may or may not get into that. <laughs> uh, I may or may not know the author, and I encourage everyone to take a read when they can of Bosom Friends. Uh, it was the culmination of many years of research and sort of was my answer to one of these important questions of history, and I think ultimately is how do our leaders, how do our presidents rise to power? What are the political means by which individuals go, say, from, in the case of James Buchanan, a lawyer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to the White House. And what I found is that he did it through friendship. He did it through political friendship. And in the case of his friendship with William Rufus King, an Alabama senator, vice president under Franklin Pierce, he did so by forming what I call an intimate male friendship. And so the question of sexuality is, is you're right, it's the more titillating one. It's the one that I hope will bring readers to the book. And I, I do answer it in the book. And I think um, it's an important one still, as we see today in a different environment around sexuality as LGBTQIA plus identified politicians attempt to make their way, not always in the public sort of favor um, or necessarily for that reason are they in disfavor. But it's still, I think, an underlying issue today about sexuality and about an individual's personal choices. It, it leads me to really underscore a point that all politics, really all public facing activity we do is truly personal. Well, Thomas Palsesky, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me, Ian. 
And again, I'm speaking with Thomas Balsersky, who is the Ray Allen Billington Visiting Professor of U.S. History at Occidental College and a long-term fellow at the Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens. He is the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. And he has an article at CNN, Kevin McCarthy is Getting Schooled in History. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.